This morning's reading is Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Thanks, Jane. Great. So we're currently um, in a sermon series that's entitled Lamp Unto My Feet. Um, It's based in the book in the Old Testament of the Psalms. This sort of 3,000-ish year old collection of some 150 um, poems, songs, and prayers that we find in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And really between them, they express and they capture and they offer guidance for just about every possible experience, circumstance, and human emotion. You know, when we're, when we're worried, we can go to Psalm 48 like we did last week. Or, or when we're feeling thankful, we can crack out Psalm 92 like we did with John Bernard Carlin a couple of weeks ago. And today we have come to this psalm that Jane just read, Psalm 98, and it contains words for the rejoicing. Did you notice uh, verse one, sing to the Lord a new song, and it says, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth, in verse four. Now, of course, the reality is, um, in a room this size with this many people, um, there will be people in a whole range of places emotionally here today. And whilst some of us are perhaps here in a mood to rejoice, something brilliant's happened, others of us will, of course, be far from that place right now. Spurs fans have just lost Harry Kane, for example. (laughs) And it begs the question, what do we do with these words of rejoicing when we aren't in a rejoicing place? And there's a few options, I suppose. One option would be to treat a psalm like this, like a bit like a fancy bottle of champagne that we keep in the fridge. Um, You know, we save it for that moment where we have finally got a reason to rejoice and then we dust it off and we pop the cork. Or another option would be to just engage with a psalm like this by just faking it, just pretending that we're happy, you know, just putting on our best Ned Flanders-style plastic smile As if, you know, singing, I've got this joy, 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 joy down in my heart with enough gusto, it will finally make it true, even though it isn't. Incidentally, my wife, Abby, recalls being forced to sing, forced or encouraged to sing, I've got this Sunday school enthusiasm down in my heart. I don't know if it did have the desired effect. But that, I don't think, is the best option. You know, this isn't about fake it till you make it. We want to be real. So here's a third option. I want to suggest that as well as being a great place to go when we feel a certain way, the Psalms are also places in Scripture where, particularly when we're together, we can go together 
to be taken to a certain place emotionally. And the image that springs to my mind as I've been looking at this psalm these last few days is that of a snowball, a giant snowball coming down the side of a hill. And you know what snowballs do? They, they snowball, don't they? They gather they gather more snow unto themselves as they flow. And what I mean by that is that if you look at this psalm, at the start of it, did you notice it was just the nation of Israel that was called to give thanks and rejoice in light of the marvelous things God had done for them. But then it becomes apparent that God's his mighty deeds and his salvation are not just for Israel, but they're also for the surrounding nations to see and be blessed by. It says, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so it sort of, it tumbles and it snowballs and every tribe and every nation are invited to join in this celebration. And then as the snowball continues, it becomes apparent that not just humanity, but all of creation is being drawn into this. It says, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. And so God is kind of assembling and calling not just humanity, but the whole of the earth, the whole of creation to join in this move of rejoicing. And so today, as we focus on this psalm, I want to just leave that picture with you. I want you to imagine this giant snowball. Imagine it just comes crashing through that wall over there and tumbling through the room today, and we receive this invitation to kind of be bundled into it, to be gathered into this movement of rejoicing if we accept that invitation. And we're going to follow the snowball through these kind of three phases. Um, First, the encouragement at the top section of the psalm is to reflect back on everything that God has done. And then as it sort of tumbles on, we get to the middle, and there's this encouragement to then respond to that by making some noise And we'll look at that. And then at the end, the final encouragement at the bottom, there's this encouragement to to, to look forward to his promises and rejoice. You know, by the time you've followed the snowball through all those phases, there's this this sense that hopefully you've been brought to this place where regardless of your circumstances, we have seen that we have a reason to rejoice. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Does that sound all right? Is everybody on board with that? Great. Okay, off we go. First point, reflect on all God has done. So it's helpful to remember that, you know, long ago, long before the Psalms became Christian fridge magnets and inspirational posters, they were poems and songs written in the Hebrew scriptures. And most Bible um, scholars agree that um, when you look at Psalm 98, the particular language that's used in the first, ver- first few verses, um, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked a salvation for him. They think that this is a deliberate echo of very similar language that you can read in Exodus chapter 15. Just going to read some of it. It says, um, first one, I will sing to the Lord, for he, is silent, for he is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And then this language in verse six, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. And most of these scholars think that this psalm is urging in the, in the first verse the, Israel, the nation of Israel to look back to Exodus 15 and look back to a particular story that you read about there, the moment of this victorious victory where God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. It's an incredible story. If you've, ever, if you've never read it, you should check it out. It's full of miracles and wonders. There's this point where um, the, the, the nation of Israel are spared from, um, from death by painting blood on, on the lamb 
blood of a lamb on their doorway. And then there's this kind of spectacular finale where God literally opens up the Red Sea and it, there's like a wall of water either side and they walk to their escape on dry land. And as they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they put their feet down on dry ground the other side and they look back and they survey the victory that God has won, there's this moment where Moses, who's, who's their leader, his sister Miriam just bursts out into a new song um, just for the occasion. And we just heard some of those words from Exodus 15. And so in Psalm 98, by echoing some of that language, it's effectively transporting them back to that story. It's an invitation to imagine yourself stood on the safety of the banks of the Red Sea, looking back at this miraculous victory that God has won. And for the nation of Israel, remembering this story was an an essential part of them preserving their national identity. It's something that they did every year through celebrating the Passover festival. Um, and they would do that faithfully every year in the, in, the, in the good years, in the good seasons, but also in the difficult times. For example, they continued to do it through the years later when they were conquered as a nation by the Babylonians and their temple was destroyed and the core of the nation were carted off, sent into exile in Babylon. And during that time, it would have been hard. In fact, in Psalm 137, we get a little insight to how hard it would have been. It says how they sat weeping in Babylon and they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? But yet they hung in there. They refused to lose sight. They refused to stop looking back at what God had done. And they continued to read Psalms like 98 and tell this story each year and remind themselves, hey, things are bad, but this isn't the first time we've been conquered by another nation. This isn't the first time we've been enslaved. Remember Egypt? And remember how that panned out. If God brought us through that, he can bring us through this. And we have to be grateful that they did that. It's really cool that they did that because if they hadn't, if they hadn't preserved these words and looked after them through those years, it would not be possible for us to pick them up and engage with this psalm today. It would not be possible for us to join in the chorus today. Because remember I said at the start, remember that snowballing effect? Um, When the nation of Israel sang this song 3,000 years ago, verses 3 and 4, He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. They, when they sang that, I mean, it's clear that they understood that God had promised that he would be faithful to Israel, like it says, and that other nations would see and be blessed by seeing this salvation. But there's no way that they could have appreciated the magnitude of what this was pointing to. There's no way that they could have, you know, grasped the scale of God's plan to reach and save all the ends of the earth. They could not have realized as they sang these words that there would come a point in history where a great choir, a multitude, not just from Israel, but from every tribe and nation would join in the song proclaiming that they too had seen their salvation in the person of Jesus. Because we too, you know, we like Israel were enslaved. We too were living in the darkness. But Christ reached into our lives with his right hand to save us. We too have been spared death through the blood of the lamb. We too have been brought through the waters. Remember baptism, that symbol of our salvation. And so do you see, 
That means that regardless of what circumstances we face, regardless of what challenges or disappointments we encounter, when we stop and we reflect on that, when we stand on the bank of the Red Sea and look back and reflect on all that God has done, we have a reason to rejoice. Because we find ourselves like the, like the father um, in the story of the prodigal son saying we had to rejoice and be glad because we were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we've been found. And there's nothing that our circumstances can do to undo that. This, um, this snowballing effect really struck me, struck me this year. Um, I, I got to go and visit the Holy Land, and I visited the site of this synagogue in Capernaum. Um, the foundations of this building are still there, and it's, I mean, it's basically it's almost certain that that is a place where Jesus would have stood and taught. And you can stand there, it's incredible. And it's not a big structure, it's probably about the size of our cafe, something like that. And I remember standing in there and and just being struck by how, you know, 2,000 years ago, this room would have been filled with a village load of rural Galileans. And now, 2,000 years on, it's literally flooded every day with a great multitude of believers from Africa, from North and South America, from Asia, from every corner of the globe, different colors, different tongues, different clothes, but united because this psalm has become true. It's happened. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God in the person of Jesus, and that is a reason to rejoice. And so the psalm, sort of, the snowball churns on and then says, well, in light of that, make some noise. And that's the next point. Make some noise. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. The image apparently here that's being kind of like portrayed is, you know, it's depicting that spontaneous victory cry in the battlefield when, you know, like Braveheart, rah, it's that kind of shout for joy. It's the moment when we have a baptism service and somebody comes up out of the water and we go, whoa, because God has won a victory in their life. And the psalm moves on then from from shouting to talking about singing and making song. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Now, um, just in case you read that and you wonder, so it says it in the Bible, why don't we do it? Why don't we worship with harps and ram's horns? And remember, this is poetry. It's not literal. And we're looking for the spirit of this. So... As much as I would love to see Ronnie drag a harp up here and play it with his hair flowing behind, we would all love to see that, wouldn't we? But the encouragement here, the spirit of really, the spirit of it is to get the musicians, get the creatives, get the new musical instruments out and the choirs and make joyful sounds. Because words in themselves and poetry has power, but we all know, don't we, that words come alive when they're coupled creatively and skillfully with music. And when we don't just read the words, but then when we, when, we, when we sing them out loud, when we engage our physicality, the whole thing, there's like an emotional amplification that happens with music. And that's a good thing. And we've all, we've all experienced this. You know, for example, if I was to just say to you these words, just the words, I've got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night, that may or may not have any emotional impact on you. But, you know, if I was to play this, you know the song, don't you? Dun, 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 dun. I got a feeling, you know the song, that tonight's gonna be a good night. Maybe we should have actually played the real song. <laughs> Would have been a bit more. But you know what I mean. It takes life. 
And I believe, the, you know, we all know this, humanity, every culture, there's music. And this universal love of music, I think, reveals to us that we're wired to do this. It's by design, it's baked into us, it's instinctive. That's why when you go to a football ground, the people sing. When you go to a gig, people sing. It's, it's wired into us, but it finds its truest and its proper purpose, I believe, not in a city ground, but when we're gathered together as believers. And that's why we do it, week in, week out. That's why we do this thing, which I guess when you think about it, it is slightly strange, isn't it? That we stand every week in a semicircle and sing at a wall. Why do we do it? And churches all across the globe do it. We do it for this reason. It's why we sing in our kids' groups and why we get our youth doing it. And um, it's why we sing together in our living rooms and in small group settings. And I just want to... Um, speak about that specifically, because I'm really quite passionate about that, actually, opinionated. Um, Abby and I have been leading small groups here for years now, um, and one of the things I think we've really come to a conclusion about and have a strong conviction about is that it's so important to sing in our small group settings. We have been part of groups that have been blessed with wonderful small group leaders. We have also been part of groups where the, it's been a bit more mixed, shall we say, and worst of all, we've been part of groups where it's fallen at times to me um, to pick up the guitar and try and sing. And I've got to say that um, for me, standing up here and speaking like this is not that stressful. But standing in my own living room with a handful of friends and picking up a guitar and trying to sing, I'm sweating, you know, before I've got to the first line. It, it, at times it's hard and it's almost a little bit awkward but through these experiences, I think we've come to the conviction that although sometimes it's a little bit awkward, it's precious and it's powerful. And it's not about how gifted you are. And it's not about how slick it is. It's about God. It's about him. It's not about how much we get out of it. It's about what we express to him. And the, thing, the only thing I think that matters is, is it sincere. Because when it is sincere... The Holy Spirit always comes and blesses it, whether it's in tune or not. So just an encouragement there, push into it. From there, the snowball of this psalm then sort of like, as I say, continues. And all of creation gets swept into this call to rejoice in the Lord. Um, it says, let the sea resound and everything in it. And we have these beautiful pictures, pictures of, of, of the mountains singing Again, just a reminder, this is poetry, it's not literal. The rivers don't have hands, so we don't know what that means for them to clap, but they're going to clap. It's wonderful imagery. Um, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we're reminded that although this is a beautiful picture, it's, it remains at this stage a promise. Um, it's not yet, creation has not yet reached that point of rejoicing. In Romans chapter 8, Paul explains that both humanity and creation, in fact, are, he says, groaning in the midst of our present imperfect troubled age. Um, Romans 8 verse 19, creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Or in verse 22, it says, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's waiting for this amazing thing to happen. And not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship. And so, yes, there is this promised day coming when all of creation and all of God's people will be renewed and we will be fully revealed as his new recreation children. And all of creation will rejoice and the rivers will clap their hands, whatever that means. And the mountains will sing and will recognize it. 
but we haven't yet reached that day. And as it stands, that means that we have to go through, in the meantime, difficult times as we await that age. We experience pain and disappointment and defeat. And of course, it feels unnatural sometimes to rejoice in the midst of all that. But like I said at the start, I don't believe that the message of this psalm is that we're to just, you know, oh well, just grit your teeth and sing a happy song anyway. To me, the structure of this psalm, in fact, as we read it, is a kind of like an acknowledgement of this fact, of this tension that we sit in. It's interesting, if they, they just stick the whole thing up there on the screen, you can see that um, at the start of this psalm, it says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And then it's almost like this other statement, is there's like two bookends. At the end, it says, sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. In other words, sing, for he will do marvellous things. And so these two bookends, I sort of think they, they almost are a reminder that we sit at this point in history between, in this in-between time, where we are waiting that day where the king will come again to put everything right. And so this is our final encouragement today. We can rejoice even in the midst of that as we look ahead to all that he has promised to do. And since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago, the reality of this promise that he is coming has enabled believers to rejoice, um, like it says in 1 Thessalonians, in all circumstances, or as it says in Romans, to rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings. They've been able to do this. In fact, I love, there's a story in the book of Acts where the believers, um, at one point, some of them are arrested and they get taken to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts, and they're flogged um, for talking about Jesus. But it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin, having been flogged, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name, the name of Jesus. And we, we, you know, we look at that and we think, well, that's crazy that they did that. But the reality is Christians through the centuries have experienced the same. You know, just one example of that, um, here in the UK, in the 17th century, um, in the aftermath of the Civil War here, um, there were severe religious restrictions in place that made it illegal for anybody to preach outside the context of an Anglican church. Um, some of you might be thinking, quite right too. Um, but there was this, um, this guy, John Bunyan, who was a non-conformist preacher. He was the author of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and um, because of that, he was arrested. And when he was arrested, it was very sad. Tragically, his, his wife was thrown by the shock into early labor, and they lost their child. And then John subsequently spent 12 years of his life in prison, um, separated from his wife and four surviving children. And yet amidst this needless, unfair suffering, he found joy. Um, in one of his journals... Um, it's written, those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Sometimes when I've been in the savour of them, I've been able to laugh at destruction and to fear neither the horse nor his rider. I have, made, I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I just want to look at that, that, last, that last line. How did he rejoice in that really dark place? He did it, he said, by, by having sweet sights of the forgiveness of his sins. In other words, looking back to the marvelous thing that God had done in his life. 
and of having visions of being with Jesus in another world. In other words, looking forwards to the promise that one day he would experience the fullness of the blessing of being with Jesus. And the thing is, this story is not unique. Wherever you go in geography and whenever you go in history in the last 2,000 years, wherever and whenever you find Christians who have experienced hardship and suffering and injustice, you find stories of Christians who have found the place of rejoicing in the midst of all of it. It's crazy, but it's true. We read about it today. You know, listen to the stories that come um, towards us from the persecuted church in North Korea, in Somalia, in Yemen, in Eritrea, and Nigeria, and Pakistan, and Iran. They, they, they rejoice in the midst of their suffering. It's baffling, it's challenging, it's inspiring, but I think most of all, it's real. It, it's genuine. And even, to be honest, even here in this room, we know that there are, you know, there are so many of us in this room right now who are the walking wounded, who are burdened by fears and threats and heartache and disappointments, and yet you're here rejoicing in God in the midst of it. And that kind of rejoicing, it simply, it doesn't make total sense. It doesn't make sense unless you are of the view and of the belief that one day Jesus will come and renew all things. Because if that's true, if that is reality, then even in the darkest times, we have a reason to rejoice. We can look back at the marvelous things that he has done in our lives. We can look forward to the marvelous things that he's promised to one day do. And we can sing these songs in season and out, and some of us in tune and out. And we can add our small voice to this growing global chorus as this snowball grows and gathers more people until all of creation will one day bear witness and resound with the cry of our broken hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, and eventually welcome, Lord Jesus. We can rejoice because his right hand has reached into our lives. We have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. We have been drawn through the waters and one day we will see him come again. And on that day, there'll be no more pain, no more suffering. There'll be justice reigning forever. It's good stuff, isn't it? And that's a reason to rejoice. Now, each week, as we have um, ended these psalm talks, we have ended by rereading the psalm. And um, today, we're going to do that slightly differently. We're actually going to read almost like a, a poetic rendering of this psalm. Um, about 300 years ago, a guy called Isaac Watts wrote a hymn about Psalm 98. Um, and it's very much written from the perspective of the Christian, um, sort of seeing and recognizing that Jesus is the king who is coming to set everything right, the king that creation longs to see and rejoices in. And apparently when this, when this hymn, 300 years ago, was Sometime after that, it was put to music, and people, when they sang it, they, it was so much of a rejoicing of Jesus, they saw that they were like, this, this should be a Christmas hymn. And so you'll probably recognize it as Jane comes to read it in a moment. But I just want to encourage you um, to just engage with these familiar words afresh and allow them to sort of speak to your heart and allow the rejoicing that's within them to start to snowball in your own heart. So, Jane, would you come, come read it for us? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. 
Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. <laughs> 